If you have God's Word with you tonight, if you will turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Very familiar story that we all have heard plenty of times before. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them literally to the uttermost. That's the best way to translate that word. He loved them as much as he could love them. That's the whole point of what it's trying to say. He loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet or washed the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, would you or do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do also, or you also should do just if I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who is sinning. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that your word teaches us about your son, Jesus. It teaches us about what you expect out of us as believers in Christ. And it helps us to know how we're supposed to live in the world in which we find ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us tonight. Encourage our hearts. Challenge us to live more like Jesus this week than we did last week. Live like Jesus more every day than we did the day before. And Father, I pray that, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
In Galatians chapter 5, we read the statement, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom uh, as an opportunity to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, in love, we are to serve one another. In fact, Jesus said the entire law is summed up in the words that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it really doesn't matter what role or position we have as far as where God has placed us in the body. God has placed some as pastors. He's placed some as deacons. He's placed some as Sunday school teachers. Uh, He has placed some on committees in our church. It really doesn't matter the position that we hold. Whatever that position, we are called to serve one another in love. In the New Testament, there are two different words that refer, that are translated servant. One is the, the, the term from which we get uh, the word deacon. It literally means waiting on tables. That's the idea that we are to serve. There's another word that we read about, and it's usually translated bond servant. Bond servant. And that is really describing a person who voluntarily submits himself uh, or lowers himself in order that he might serve others. Paul chose the second term, the bondservant term in Galatians chapter 5 that I just mentioned to you. We are to serve one another in love. That's hard to do, isn't it? In the world in which we find ourselves, it's really hard to humble ourselves and to serve, isn't it? Because we live in a world where we're taught to magnify ourselves, and we want to be the center of attention. We want to be the center of the world. Uh, kids are brought up a lot of times thinking they are the center of the world until they get out and get on their own and start working in the real world and realize that the world doesn't revolve around them. Uh, they, it may revolve around them when they're home with their parents, but when they get out in the real world, they realize they're not the center of the universe. We live in the me generation We talk about me and myself and my rights and my interests and what I want. We don't really talk about loving and serving one another. But that's exactly what God calls us to do in this passage. When our our girls were little, Aaron and Lauren, they used to love to draw pictures. Lauren still is a really good artist today. Aaron's kind of like her daddy. We can't even draw stick people straight. But they love to draw and they love to color. And, of course, we used to get those markers, those washable markers that they could color on. Or we had people from the States when we were missionaries that would send us or bring us markers so that the girls would have something to color with. And oftentimes they'd bring them coloring books. Well, they'd start drawing and coloring. And by the time they got finished, guess what? They had marks on their arms, on their legs, because they would sit down and put their coloring book between their legs. They would have it on their hands and their arms and their feet and and sometimes on their face, they'd reach up to scratch something and have a marker in their hand. They had to have literally markers all over everywhere. Now, that was fine as long as they had the washable kind of markers. But every once in a while, guess what they would do? They would pick up a permanent marker. And you know about permanent markers. They're not coming off anytime soon. It would have to take a while for it to wear off through a number of baths and, you know, just wear off through time. It would finally go away, but it would be weeks and sometimes even a month before the marks would disappear. If I were to ask you tonight, what kind of marks 
do you have on your body or what kind of marks do you have in your life that would tell other people that you belong to Jesus Christ? In other words, what kind of marks characterize your life? Is it bitterness? Is it hatred? Is it mean-spiritedness? Or is it something else? Those kind of marks that God calls on us to have. In this particular passage where we see Jesus, he demonstrated or showed to us three different marks, I believe, that every Christian ought to display in his or her life. The first one is love. This passage said that Jesus, having loved his disciples to the uttermost, as much as he could possibly love them, Jesus displayed his love in the way in which he treated his disciples, didn't he? And in the way in which he treated others. Jesus loved people. And it was evident in his life. His disciples were attracted to him and stayed with him because they experienced that love that the Lord Jesus Christ had for them. The Bible tells us that God loves his children and that God loves us with an everlasting love. The Bible tells us that God chose Abraham because he loved Abraham. The Bible says that God chose the people of Israel because he loved them. God made a deliberate choice to love them. Uh, He sent Moses to Egypt to bring his children out of bondage because he had heard the cries of his people and he loved his people and he wanted to bring them out and give them a land flowing with milk and honey. God not only talks about His love, does He? God demonstrates just how much He loves us by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. As somebody said, how much does God love us? He loves us this much. Jesus spread His arms open wide and died on the cross. That's what it means that Jesus loved His disciples to the uttermost, to the very bitter in. When a young man came to Jesus one day and he asked him what the greatest commandment was, Jesus told him to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said, if, I'm, if I have all things but have not love, I'm nothing. Love is something that every Christian ought to have. The foundation of our life ought to be love. When people look at believers in Christ, every one of us, they shouldn't sense a judgmental spirit. Uh, They shouldn't sense somebody who thinks they're better than they are. They ought to see true love. The reason why the early church grew as rapidly as it did is because of the love. As one person said, oh, how they love one another. Guys, if we don't do anything else at Rock Hill Baptist Church, I hope and pray that we demonstrate love to every person on this planet. I think we do a great job of it. We can always do a better job of it. But we ought to love one another. That ought to be the number one mark in our lives that tell people that we belong to Jesus. We ought to love people who are down and out. We ought to love people who don't dress like we do, who don't talk like we do, who people who have tattoos, people that have uh, 
piercings all over their body. It doesn't matter what they look like. We ought to love them. Why? Because God loves them. And because God loves us. Because God first loved us, we can love each other. We can love other people. And because God has poured out His love in our life through the Holy Spirit, you remember, love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it not? The reason why you and I can love others is not because of anything good within us. It's because God has so loved us and He has so poured His love out into our heart that we can truly love other people. A second mark that Jesus demonstrates here in this particular passage of Scripture is humility. Jesus, imagine the burden that Jesus must have been carrying on His heart. He knew, what he, he, knew he was headed to, to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He had come in a week earlier. He'd come in on Sunday. This was now Thursday. Jesus has been teaching every day, making one more attempt to try to call the people to repentance, to call the people to accept the kingdom that Jesus was offering. But the leadership of the nation had made up their mind that Jesus was a heretic, that he was a false messiah, that he was a nobody. And they had already plotted in themselves how they could put Jesus Christ to death. But because Jesus loved that nation and because Jesus loved that people, He continued to cry out in the temple daily teaching them about who God was and about who He was. Don't you know His heart must have been broken as He's, he's crying out to His own people and He came to His own, as John says in the first part of His Gospel, but His own received Him not. You ever been to your house before? Ever been to maybe one of your children's house and you didn't feel welcome? How does that make you feel? Heartbreaking, isn't it? When you love your children and that love's not returned. Think about Jesus when he came to his own family, the Jewish people, his own nation, and they refused to accept him. Jesus, who had entered the city with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Sunday, by, month, by Thursday, Friday, there he's going to hear people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Fickle people, aren't they? People are fickle. Didn't change Jesus' love for them. But as Jesus is dealing with all the weight of all this stuff that's going on, and he knows the very next day he's going to be crucified, he's wanting to celebrate the Lord, actually the Passover, one more time with his disciples so that he can institute the Lord's Supper as a memorial so that you and I would remember the crucified body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for us. He wanted to celebrate that with his disciples. So there is an upper room that has been prepared. And at feast times, when people would eat, they would not eat sitting at a table like you and I would sit. They would literally recline. There would be these long benches and they would recline. And one person would lay down on the bench on, on their left shoulder typically because you didn't eat. You don't eat with your left hand most uh, places over the, overseas. Uh, that's the one that you used to clean yourself up with, and so it was, it was dirty for you to use your left hand. So you would literally lean on your left elbow, 
and your feet would be out towards the table, probably underneath the table somewhat, but a little bit to the side of the table. And the next person is right here behind you doing the same thing. Now, if you're walking in sandals on dirty, dusty streets that have feces and trash and garbage and everything else, can you imagine the odor? Some of y'all have, you know, some people that I know have really bad foot odor and there's not anything they can do about it. But it wouldn't have mattered if you had foot odor or not. If you'd been walking the dirty, dusty streets, your feet would have stank. And leaning like that on your arm trying to celebrate a meal together with friends, it would be really distracting to have to smell that odor. In fact, I don't know that I could have eaten with that kind of odor going on. And so typically what would happen is, if you were going to a big house, one of the servants in the house would wash everybody's feet so that they would be clean, so they could go in and enjoy the meal together without that nasty smell going on. Of course, Jesus and his disciples, they were poor. They, didn't, they might have been using and borrowing a big house, but Jesus and his disciples probably were the only ones there. There was no servant to wash their feet. You would have thought... One of those disciples would have noticed how burdened Jesus' heart was and how burdened and how tired Jesus was from all that he had been through and experienced. And you think that one of these disciples would have gotten up and girded himself with a towel and poured a basin full of water and began to wash the feet of those who were getting ready to celebrate this meal. But you have to remember, if you go through Scripture and you're reading through the Scriptures, you understand... What's going on in the disciples about this time? Well, they're having a big argument among themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're, if you're thinking you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be second in command after Jesus in this kingdom. Because when we're talking about kingdom, we're talking about a king and we're talking about leadership. And, we're talking about, and so if you're worried about you being the number one or the number two person in the kingdom, what are you not going to do? You're not going to humble yourself, are you? You're not going to humble yourself and wash somebody else's dirty feet because that might counteract what you've just said, that you're going to be the most important person in the kingdom of heaven. We live in a world in a day and time where we're told to be strong, we're told to grasp for whatever we want, we're told to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, if you want to call it that way. Uh, we're told don't worry about who you have to hurt and who you have to step on to get what you want. You deserve, uh, you deserve it, and you ought to go for it no matter who it hurts, no matter what happens. That's the way many of us are taught, especially in the United States. We live in a very individualistic society. What Christ asks of us is counter-cultural. It goes against the culture of our day. Jesus tells us that we ought to humble ourselves. He calls on His disciples to have humility as a very mark in our life. Our lives ought to be characterized by great humility. In fact, Paul, the great apostle, said, you ought to put other people's interest in front of your own. Is that hard for anybody else besides me? Is it hard for you to put somebody else's interest in front of what you really want? It's pretty hard, isn't it? Because we think we're right and we want what we want. And so oftentimes we don't show humility. 
Somebody has written discipleship, true discipleship, forgets my position, my reputation, my title, and my family tradition. And he's not talking about forgetting in the sense of not remembering. It's talking about those things don't matter in God's kingdom for a disciple. It doesn't matter if I've got more money than you do. It doesn't matter if I've got a higher position than you do. None of that matters. What matters is me meeting your needs, is me humbling myself and ministering to you. How many Christians do that in our world today? How many Christians truly humble themselves and put other people's needs in front of their own? There was a missionary doctor that lived in India, and she had been there for about seven years. She was trying not only to minister to people's physical needs, but she was also trying to help them come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. She had little to no impact on anybody's life in that community where she found herself until one day she was out in the community trying to knock on doors and make friends and you know, just trying to get an entrance to talk to people about the, her Lord. And she went into this house of a lady that she had met. And this lady's mother was way overweight and was sick and in the process of dying. And the daughter was not big enough that she could even turn her mother over to give her any relief or whatsoever. So for months, this lady doctor, every day at the same time, went by, went into that house help that daughter tend to the needs of her mother up until the point when several months that mother passed away. All of a sudden, everybody in that village and everybody in that town and everybody in that community knew who this doctor was and they were willing to listen to what she had to say. She accomplished more by humbling herself and doing a menial task of taking care of somebody's needs. But that spoke volumes to the people around her. What, a difference do you, what difference do you think it would make in our world if Christians humbled themselves and put other people's needs in front of their own and ministered to them as Christ ministered to His disciples? We live in a day and time when it's hard for us to admit that we're wrong, right? Reminds me of Gibbs on NCIS. My wife likes to watch NCIS, one of the few shows on television that we actually watch. Uh, anyway, Gibbs is always saying, don't ever apologize, it's a sign of weakness. How many of us have that as a motto in our own life? That may be worldly wisdom, but that's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says put other people's needs in front of your own. Put their interests in front of their own. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility put other people interest in front of our own so not only should we love others not only should that be a mark in our life and who we are but also humility ought to be a mark in the life of every christian the last thing that jesus mentions here is the blessedness that comes when we know that we ought to love people and when we ought to humble ourselves the blessedness that comes to us not only when we know these things but when we do them the word blessedness can be tr translated joy. So another mark that every disciple, every Christian ought to have is the mark of joy. 
Is your life filled with joy? Now, notice I didn't say happiness because happiness depends on circumstances. And guys, let's just face it. The last year and a half to two years have not been the greatest circumstances, have they? And we struggle with happiness and finding contentment in the world in which we find ourselves. Nobody likes what we're going through. Everybody wants it to go away. It may be here to stay for the rest of time until Jesus comes back. We have no idea. Somewhere or another, we've got to get to a point where we can, we can uh, deal with all this together and show love and humility and find, even in the midst of the trials of life that we're going through, find the joy. And where does joy come from? Is it not another fruit of the Spirit? Does not God's Holy Spirit? You know, a lot of times as a pastor, I've gone into people's homes and I've gone to encourage people, maybe here on their deathbed or dying, only to come out being the one encouraged. I've gone in to do the encouraging, but I've come out encouraged. And I've come out with joy in my life that I was privileged enough to be in the room with that person. Guys, when you and I show love and humility, it brings a joy to our heart and to our life that we've been able to make a difference in somebody's life. Joy comes from an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy comes when we keep short accounts with God. When we keep our sins confessed. Listen to what David said. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me a knot away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. If you and I harbor unconfessed sin in our life, guess what? We're not going to have joy, are we? We're not going to be joyful people if we have sin, unconfessed sin in our life. The way to experience joy is to keep short accounts with God, to keep prayed up and confessed up so that we can be the people that God wants us to be. And as we love and serve others, then we will experience the joy that comes from that kind of relationship and that kind of action on our life. Is joy important in our world today? It is, isn't it? I want to be characterized by joy all the time. I want people when they look at me to say, hey, you know, that guy's a, that guy's a Christian and he's not angry at somebody. You know, he actually has joy in his life. Again, that's what attracts people to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You want to be strong today in the world in which we find ourselves? Then let God's joy permeate your life. Let the Holy Spirit produce love and humility and joy in your heart. When you make it so that you can make it through the trials of life, so that you can stand strong in the storms of life, we all need God's joy. Well, our lives ought to be characterized by certain marks. We ought to not use our freedom for an occasion to the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians 5, but through love we are to serve one another because that honors our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as I said before, my girls used to have marks all over them when they got through coloring, visible marks that people could see. And if they were permanent markers, it was around for a while. In fact, I'm, not, I'm surprised that they've grown up and still don't have some kind of marks on them as many times as they marked all over themselves with the crayons. Guys, when people look at us, they ought to see Jesus. They ought to see a people 
who love other folks, who are willing to humble themselves to do whatever's necessary to meet the needs of other people, and people characterized by great joy. How sad that most of the world sees a bunch of people who say they're Christians. I mean, that's between them and the Lord. It's not me for judge to judge them. But so oftentimes people in this world see Christians who are angry at one another, who are judgmental, who don't truly love one another. And guys, that ought not be characteristics of us. We ought to be characterized by these marks that are permanent in our life because they're produced by the Spirit of the living God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that Lord, each one of us would have marks, identifiable marks, so that when people look at us, they would see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're so thankful that you loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us. And Lord, he loved us to the uttermost. He loved us as far as he could possibly love us because he went to the cross and he paid the penalty of our sins. And because of that, Lord, we are born again. And we have this relationship with you and we can experience love and joy and humility in our lives. Father, I pray that when people look at us, they will say, oh, how these people love Jesus and oh, how they love others. And oh, how humble they are that they put other people's interests even in front of their own. And they are characterized by just a deep abiding sense of joy. Because, Lord, I know those things are attractive to anybody, and those things will draw people to you. Lord, thank you for grace that is ours today. Lord, I know that we don't always measure up to what you want us to be or do, but, Father, I'm so thankful that you're a God who forgives. Lord, I pray that this very week people would see these marks in our lives to your honor and to your glory. And, Father, I pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.